need y'all's help this morning. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a week, been a lot going on, but uh, but the Lord is still good. Amen. Amen. All right. On September 6, 2018, off-duty police officer Amber Geiger walked into the apartment of both John and, fate, and fatally shot him. On October 1st, 2019, Geiger was found guilty of murder, re receiving a sentence of 10 years in prison. At that sentencing, Botham's brother spoke to Geiger, saying, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want for you. He then asked the judge if he could hug her. She obliged, he did, and social media went crazy. This is the epitome of Christian action, people said. This is what the gospel is all about, people said. Forgiveness. That same day, Botham's mother also spoke to the press. She said, however, that, that, that there is much more that needs to be done in Dallas. That corruption within this particular police department needed to stop. That contamination of a crime scene should never happen again. That poor training shouldn't be allowed. That there were systemic issues that needed to be addressed. Said another way, reconciliation could only happen in the presence of justice. Now, both of these individuals spoke as Christians. But which response is the Christian response? To call for forgiveness? or to call for reconciliation through justice? Spoiler alert, the answer is both. <laughs> but, but how we say that is very, very important. And so we're gonna to look to the scriptures and to our savior for that answer. And so today's sermon is titled, Christians Are Weird. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us as you have left us to just flail uh, unknowing. Uh, but Lord, you've revealed yourself to us. And so Lord, I pray that your spirit would descend on your people. Lord, open your word to us. Um, Lord, speak, uh, speak this morning. Open hearts, open ears, open minds. Lord, we pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so we've so we've entered into a new a new phase in the book of in the book of Acts. Uh, so a few weeks ago, uh, when I had the opportunity to preach, I preached about the Ethiopian eunuch, the first Gentile convert, a black African man, big deal, and he signals and he sig and, and 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 he signals the fact that the gospel is being opened up to the entire world, Jew and Gentile. And in the preceding chapters, in chapters nine and ten especially of Acts, we've been introduced to Saul also known as Paul, later. And Saul is going to be our main character going, going forward, bringing the gospel to Gentile communities around the Mediterranean world. But there are a few aspects of this mission that, that, we, have, that we haven't talked about yet at Mosaic that we're going to talk about today. So I got, I got two points. I got two points for you this morning, which is different. It's okay. It'll be all right. Um, it's breaking the mold. That's fine. Um, those, those two points are that the people of God need a new name because of the forgiveness that's taken place. And they have new needs which require justice and reconciliation. So really, this is a sermon about forgiveness and reconciliation. Verses 19 to 26 point to why these people are called Christians, why they have to be given this, this new name that shows up for the first time in the scriptures here. And then verses 27 to 30 talk about a particular thing that these Christians do because of who they are. And so by the end of this sermon, we'll hopefully have a better idea of what it means to be whatever this Christian thing means. Cool? All right. So where do we begin in verses 19 and 20? Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. We've got some folks who think that the gospel only needs to go out to the Jews, they do that, but then there are some people who speak to the Greeks, the Hellenists. And so, and so this preaching happens, those preachers meet with great success, which is surprising to the Jewish believers. And so the church in Jerusalem sends, sends Barnabas to encourage them. Barnabas is like, this is great. He goes and finds Saul, brings Saul to Antioch, and they spend a year there. So what's What's, what's really going on? What's really going on in this passage? What we're seeing in Antioch is an otherworldly kind of reconciliation. And to understand this, we need to know a little bit about Antioch. And so one of the, one of the, one of the things that's going to be important for today is that if we're going to understand forgiveness and reconciliation, we're going to have to understand history. Now I'm going to be selective in my retelling because uh, Desiree always tells me that whenever history comes up, her eyes glaze over. So, um, so I'm just going to focus on I'm just going to focus on the juicy stuff. But we can't. But we can't. But here's the thing: like we can't go forward unless we know where we've been. And so we've spent a fair amount of time talking about how how the gospel brings together different cultures and how beautiful that is. But we've largely left unsaid why bringing together different cultures is a difficult thing to do. It's not just because language separates us. It's not just food preferences or musical preferences or perceived ability to dance or worship style or preaching style. That's not it. There's a, there's a reason why 
says in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ is our peace. And that in his flesh he has made both groups, that is Jew, Jew and Gentile, into one. And has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Paul knew what was at stake. We don't separate just because of preference. We separate because of hostility. And often, that hostility is actually well-founded. Here's what I mean. Antioch was a city of turmoil. It was known for both political uprisings and for natural disasters. It, it, they, they, they had to rebuild this city multiple times because of catastrophic earthquakes. But it was also a place of trauma. Because Antioch was named after Antiochus I, a ruler of the Seleucid Empire. But the Jews in that area knew another one of his, they, they knew one of his descendants very well. This guy's name was Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Somebody say Epiphanes. <laughs> so, um, you may have heard the word Epiphany before. It means God manifest. And so this dude, his, his name was just Antiochus. He's like, let me call myself Epiphanes too. Let me call myself God manifest in case you need to know the kind of guy this guy is. And so when he ruled over the Jewish people in this, in this area, his philosophy was that peace comes through conformity. And so he heavily persecuted practicing Jews. The books of Maccabees tell us that, that he looted the temple and told the Jewish people to give up their customs and submit to the imperial cult, that is, to worship him. He forbade burnt offerings and even forbade them to circumcise their children. He burned the books of the Hebrew Bible and if any women had their children circumcised, he put the women to death, he put their families to death, he put the ones who did the circumcision to death, and he hung the infants from their mother's necks. And he put a statue of Zeus in the middle of the temple. Zeus, in the place where, where Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dwelled. This was the reason why the Jews in this area rebelled. And these are a few of the reasons why trust wasn't really a big part of Jew-Gentile relations. Gentiles were foreigners. Gentiles were oppressors. Gentiles were the ones who called the Jewish people to renounce everything they held dear. Gentiles killed their families and desecrated their temples, drilled deeply into the ancient Jewish mind with the message, don't trust them, they'll kill you. And such a thought was justified. We see a little bit of this, of this kind of distrust in Acts 9, in the interaction between Saul and Ananias. It's not a true Gentile thing, but the same kind of distrust is there. Because, because Saul was killing Christians. Ananias had no reason to trust him. As a matter of fact, he had ample reason not to trust him. If you were told to invite the person who had been instrumental in the lynching of your family and friends into your home, would you do it? Probably not. That'd be stupid. Or at least that's how it would appear. Because this is why God had to speak to Ananias directly in a vision. Because this kind of distrust doesn't go out lightly. We see the same kind of distrust when we see the astonishment of the Jews in Acts 10.45. Because we're told that during Peter's sermon, the Spirit descends on the Gentiles. And, the, and, the, and, and, and Jewish believers who had come with Peter were amazed. Astonished, flabbergasted, because, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That word that's translated amazed, it means they literally lost their minds. Why? Because, because God chose Israel. 
thinking that they could just be full members of the people of God. Who told them that they could? Don't they realize the things that they've done? Well, God told them that they could. Because of the work of Christ, the nature and shape of the people of God shifts. So up until Christ's death, the people of Israel were a centripetal people. This slide says centripetal. There we go. Somebody say centripetal. Centripetal means literally seeking the center. So, 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 so here's an example. When you, when you jump, why do you fall back to the ground? Gravity, right? Well, gravity is, the, is, is, the, is, the, is, 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 is a force coming from the center of the earth, pulling you toward it. It's a centripetal force, pulling you toward the center. And when you think about the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, you go, well, you didn't know that you were going to get some physics today. That's all right. Now, <laughs> that center for the people of God was the temple. God's presence was at the temple. The invitation was always to the temple. Come worship at the temple. That's where God is. Great, everybody can get in, but at least you know where the party's at. And this is the way it was for centuries. But when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple between the, holy, between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn. And when he ascended, the Holy Spirit was poured out soon afterwards. Why? Because the people of God are a centrifugal people now. Centrifugal's up there. Yeah, somebody say centrifugal. <laughs> centrifugal means fleeing the center. What do I mean by that? So there's a, so there's a simulation ride that I went on a number of years ago. I was in middle school or high school. And it's, a, and it's a space shuttle. It's a space shuttle launch. And so like you step into this little, step into this little enclosed capsule, and like it rotates, and it's, it's got a screen that makes it look like you're looking up at the sky. And then, like, it feels like you're launching up into the air. Like, it really feels like it. It's, it's, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. And, so, and so, when I, so when I got out, I was like, how in the world, like, how in the world does that, does that happen? And so I got out and, and watched it from outside. And there's a mechanism. And there's spokes that come out from that mechanism. And there, and there, and there are cars on the outside. And during that launch sequence, all that's happening is that it's spinning around really, really fast. So it's spinning around really, really fast, and you feel like, and you feel like that force is coming, is coming at you. That's what centrifugal force feels like. It's a force that's, that, that seems to be pushing you outward. The gospel is the greatest of those forces where this new temple is, Paul says, you, but he uses, but, but it's, it's, it's best translated uh, the Texan way of y'all. <laughs> y'all are the temple. The body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is corporate. And now it's his people. And so Christ pulls us in. And the Christian life is him by his spirit pushing us out. To be beacons of his forgiveness and his reconciliation. And so this is what confused the people at Antioch. This is why they had to make up a name for these followers of Christ. Because that word that's, that's transliterated Christianus, it, it has Latin origins. Which means that these are, these are Romans basically seeing these people and being like, I don't know what to do with this. Let's call them Christers. Or they think this Jesus is a big deal. So Christian. What the Romans are seeing is that people who had good, good reason to hate each other were worshiping together. That's, that's weird. My namesake, the civil rights uh, activist Malcolm X, was equally, was equally confused by Christians and the civil rights movement. 
He said in one of his speeches, uh, there's nothing in our book, the Quran, that teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send him to the cemetery. That's a good religion. In fact, that's that old-time religion. That's the, that's the one that Ma and Pa used to talk about. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a head for a head, and a life for a life. That's a good religion. And nobody resents that kind of religion being taught by a wolf who intends to make you his meal. So when Malcolm came into contact with Christians who turned the other cheek, he saw it as weak, as a lot of reasonable people do. But it's not weak. It is a superhuman strength. In our book, the greatest display of strength and power was a lowly man accepting a debt that he did not deserve and wasn't super excited about. More, more about that in a second. Similar to the civil rights movement, which extends to this day, and similar to the situation in Antioch, there are, I know this is going to make some folks uncomfortable, there are good reasons for political and racial distrust. Particularly our black and brown brothers and sisters have suffered much. And demanding forgiveness is not the most helpful way to seek healing. Let's think back to Botham John's brother. That act of forgiveness is beautiful, but it cannot be compelled. In fact, to compel it can actually be re-traumatizing. If someone has killed my brother, the first thing you say to me is not, you need to forgive the killer. You can get there later in the healing process, but you begin by sitting, acknowledging, and lamenting the evil, crying out to the Lord. Forgiveness can only come from a heart that is not only repentant itself, but a heart that recognizes that, that holding on to being sinned against in any capacity can easily lead to bitterness and hate. Forgiveness doesn't mean that, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to be upset about this thing. It doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean it's not going to affect me. What it means is, I, in forgiving, I'm refusing to hate. I'm refusing to need to get even. And we need to recognize that this is a gift that God has given us. Because we have given him ample reason to hate us. We have fled from our God. We've insulted him. We've told him that he's not worth our time and our energy. We've told him that his laws are unwise, uncomfortable, and not worth obeying. We've told our God that his people are not worth loving. And his response was to send Jesus. His response was to send Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live a holy life, and to be brought on trial for blasphemy and insurrection. To be unjustly condemned to be given a robe of purple to mock his supposed kingship, to be given a crown of thorns, a, a, an, an image, they, they may not have known this, an image of the curse on the ground in Genesis, to, to be scourged naked with a whip tipped with bone, to be spat on, to be crucified, and to be desecrated for a people who rejected it. Why? to draw them in, in order to push them out. God's forgiveness was not painless. He secured it at great cost to himself. And all who forgive feel that cost. To ask someone to forgive is to ask them to eat that cost, and that's a heavy thing to ask. But we must forgive because we have been forgiven. And we forgive because John tells us in 1 John 1.8, that if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that doesn't say that God's just super nice and he's just going to let us off the hook because he's cool like that. What it says is that God is faithful and he is just. If you have placed your faith in Christ, God's forgiveness is his faithfulness and his justice. Why? He's faithful because he's made this promise that he's going to gather people for, for himself from all nations. He's just because your sin has not been ignored. Your sin has been judged. It just hasn't been judged in you. It's been judged in the body of the Lord to whom you're linked by faith. Praise the Lord. This is the Jesus that those men of Cyprus and Cyrene preached to the Greeks in Acts 11.20. This, this was what Barnabas and Saul, and Saul worked into the very being of that church over the year that they were teaching. And this is why they get the name Christian. Because a forgiven, confessing, and forgiving community looks different. It looks weird. And so... If that's what forgiveness looks like, a people who, who, though they have good reason to be hostile to each other, are yet are, are, are working through that tension, because the tension is still there, tension doesn't go away, the pain, healing is a process. And so what does actual reconciliation look like? Let's take a look at verses 27 to 30. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is what the outcome of reconciliation is. It's generosity. Because forgiveness, by itself, doesn't heal relationships. Forgiveness, by itself, doesn't remove the pain. Forgiveness is necessary, but it is not sufficient. That's also true of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. See, because, because God, doesn't, God doesn't just desire us to just not be evil. <laughs> it's his will that we be holy. And so he sent his son not only so that by his death and his resurrection we would be forgiven, but also that we would actually be made clean. That an exchange would take place, that, that he would take our sin and that we would be clothed with his righteousness. That's how we're reconciled with God. And with one another, reconciliation has got to be two-way. Forgiveness is one way. Someone hits me in the face, I forgive them, it still hurts, I don't know if that person's going to do it again, and they might. But I'm probably going to take some steps to make sure that, that it doesn't happen again. But that's not healing. And reconciliation involves healing. You're going to find that the theologian of this sermon, for good or for bad, is Malcolm X. And so my, fa my, favorite, my favorite quote from him comes when, when he's asked about progress in 1964. He's asked uh, whether progress has been made. And he says, no, this is what I mean. He says, if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six, that's not progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. Progress is healing the wound that the blow made. And they haven't, even begun to, they haven't even begun to pull the knife out, much less heal the wound. They won't even admit that the knife is there. 
When we talk about racial, cultural, and political reconciliation, and even more so when we talk about it as the body of Christ, if we're to be the kind of people who people look at confused, as they did the church in Antioch, we have to be a people who are about healing because we have been healed. We have to be a people who are constantly confessing and constantly repenting because defensiveness, defensiveness has no, there is no, there's no place for defensiveness among the people of God. Because chances are, we're actually much worse than people around us think that we are. We, we, have, we, 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 we must be a people who are constantly forgiving because we have been forgiven much. That doesn't mean that we neglect justice. In fact, with everything that we've talked about this far, it demands that we pursue it. But we, we forgive and we work to make sure that the deeds that require forgiveness don't happen again. And for the church in Acts, this took place by means of monetary generosity. Groups that were hostile to one another now felt one another's suffering and saw the necessity of giving to one another. When the church in Jerusalem was about to face this famine, the church in Antioch remembered, wait, these are our brothers and sisters. When they suffer, we suffer. And so we need to be willing to sacrifice for them. What was a wall of hostility was broken down in Christ. And it was replaced, not by indifference, not by, oh, I'll be reconciled when they come to me. Where hostility was, now the Holy Spirit presses, it pressed the church at Antioch, and it presses us into love. The gospel is centrifugal, pushing us out from the center into the lives of our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters. Because the cross of Christ secured our forgiveness. And the raising of Christ secured for us reconciliation and power. And so what we have to remember is that the same God who drew his people in toward the temple is the same God who sent his son to die on the cross. And it's the same God whose Holy Spirit pushes us out from that new center, even to the ends of the earth. The Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and worthy of all of our praise, is the one calling us not only to forgiveness, but also to reconciliation. And we can't do this in ourselves. We can't. It's it requires a miracle. <laughs> but we must do it in Christ. Amen. And that's going to look different going to look a little weird. Investing in healing rather than a peace that papers over pain. That's different. But Jesus himself is that peace. And he is our peace. Being a Christian is weird. We're a group of people who were enemies of God and in many cases were enemies of each other. We wouldn't normally be hanging out together. In fact, we could be at each other's throats. But the power of Christ through his gospel works real spiritual, physical, and social change. He shapes us into a forgiven, confessing, and forgiving people. Get on the train of the Lord's salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray.